Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'll be speaking with David Meerman Scott and Richard Jurek, the authors of Marketing the Moon, The Selling of the Apollo Lunar Program. David Meerman Scott is a marketing strategist and the author of three best-selling books, The New Rules of Marketing and PR, Real-Time Marketing, and Marketing Lessons from the Grateful Dead. Richard Jurek has worked as a marketing and public relations executive for more than 20 years. David Meerman Scott and Richard Jurek, thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Great to be here. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you. So, David, early on, you mentioned that the support you got from many quarters of the space program in telling this story made me wonder why hasn't anyone focused on the selling of the space program to America before? You know, it's a really good question, and um, we've been talking about that a couple of times. Um, we're just really lucky, first of all, that nobody has because it's a story that absolutely needed to be told. But I think as we were digging into this, into the story itself, and really uncovering things that hadn't been talked about before, um, we were struck by the fact that because Rich and I are both marketing and communications professionals, we've, we've both spent our entire careers as marketing and PR people, that the story really needed an expert in that area to be told so that the books that typically have come out about Apollo um, tend to be books that are either written by academics or written by people who are experts in space um, or written um, by people who are uh, historians. And they wouldn't have had that business acumen, that communications um, expertise that we both have. So I think that's probably the main reason. Yeah, and I, and I, and I would add to that. I think that the main re- David hit the main reason right on the head, and I think the secondary reason is marketing and PR people generally are in the background. Their job is to put the spotlight on others. And, you know, in the introduction, Gene Cernan, uh, the last man to walk on the moon, mentioned that the astronauts were just the tip of the arrow, but they were focused on by most of the audiences. And there were several hundred thousand people behind them doing a lot of the work. And this small group of marketing and PR professionals at both NASA and the contractors did a tremendous amount of pioneering work that quite frankly, that work got lost over time as the spotlight focused on their achievement and on the astronauts themselves. Rich, I want to talk about something that happened actually before the Kennedy speech. Uh, there was, if you want to look, say, the 40s and 50s, uh, kind of, I want to say, laying the groundworks for the ideas of America in a space. And in those early things, even before Kennedy started the space program, a lot of fascinating stories. One thing that might surprise people is a magazine, Collier's, which no longer exists, but back in the first half of the 20th century, was pretty important in American publishing. How did Collier's help pave the way for the space program? Well, I, I think it's really important, and, and, and we kind of lay this out in the book, Marketing the Moon, um, this transition from science fiction to science fact, if you will, the movement from stories and uh, sometimes juvenile stories of trying to get to the moon, to it evolving into reality. And prior to Collier's, uh, going into space had been the purview of radio serials, Buck Rogers, uh, and that type of thought process that most people were exposed to. But once Collier's was written, um, it became real for a lot of people. I mean, we have to, you have to think of Collier's being on everybody's coffee table, uh, back in the day, sort of like you know Yahoo News on everybody's screen in the morning. It was the touch point where people found out culturally what was going on. And Collier's art director, uh, William Chessman, uh, pulled together three of the foremost artists 
uh, that were working uh, in the medium at the time, and they produced some of the most amazing artwork that made uh, space exploration real for a lot of people. And something that we've heard from a lot of people uh, who have seen those sections of the book is that, yeah, w when I was paying attention to how things were evolving, when I saw that Collier's cover, it really spoke to me and it really woke me up to the realities that it, it's no longer just fiction, but it's becoming fact that we can go into space. And then that led to uh, Von Braun and Disney working together uh, to create the Tomorrowland series, which then made it even more real for people and pushed us along to uh, eventually the Apollo program. Now here in 2014, if I were to ask people what's a movie that they would think of about the space program, a lot of people probably now would say Apollo 13. But not to date myself too much, I am a child of the 80s, and if somebody were to ask me, I would say the right stuff. Can you give us a sense of how famous those first astronauts were in the 1960s? The astronauts were like rock stars. I mean, instant uh, famous overnight. And it's funny, many of the astronauts, many of the moonwalkers that we, we've talked to over the years and that we, we interviewed formally for the book, Talk about it. it was amazing. Once they were appointed an astronaut, before they had even gone into space, uh, they were invited places to speak and people wanted their autographs. It was just amazing. And if you bridge the gap between the early Mercury days uh, all the way through to the Apollo days, um, and you just go back and watch some of that archival footage, let alone what you see in a movie like The Right Stuff, uh, the media was just as frenzied as the general public. The crush of uh, news reporters at the uh, first announcement of the Mercury 7 astronauts is rather lifelike from what everyone says. It was just everyone wanted to know about every bolt that fell and, and, and every move that these folks made. And it was rather overwhelming, I believe, for NASA and certainly the nascent uh, PR uh, folks and public affairs folks uh, within the NASA organization. It was a small group of, uh, for the most part, professional journalists who, given the global attention, were often overwhelmed. And uh, it led to uh, them, in a way, outsourcing the personal stories of the astronauts to uh the, the very famous Life and World Book contract, but on the other hand, made it an imperative that the NASA public affairs and PR departments operated like newsrooms to respond to the thousands and thousands of media inquiries and to assist the astronauts uh, in dealing with not only the media but the public attention. And what I find absolutely amazing. Uh, is the contrast between the American, at the time, open program of space and doing things as much as possible in a real-time environment versus, during the time of the Cold War, the Soviet program, which happened mostly in secret and behind the Iron Curtain. And uh, never once were the astronauts ever told what to say. you got to think about that. I mean, the whole world stopped and held its breath when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin touched down on the moon and waited for Neil Armstrong's first words. And NASA and the West and the United States left it up to Neil Armstrong to say whatever was in his heart to say. And that's an amazing testament to the politics and the time, but also the confidence in these people uh, as representatives and ambassadors of, of the United States. And and what's what's fascinating as well about that aspect of them being representatives and ambassadors is that NASA had um, 
several astronauts at a time that were given public affairs duty. And they, those astronauts, typically one at a time, but sometimes they went in pairs, would be taken out of their training. And typically these are astronauts that were not going to have a mission in the near future, but they were taken out of their training. And then they would go for a week at a time uh, and do PR duty, public affairs duty. They called it the week in the barrel. And they would um, go and speak to um, uh, groups that requested them to speak, rotary groups and school groups and what have you. Uh, they would sometimes meet with members of Congress in Washington. And they were the public face of the space program. And, you know, I can't imagine any other part of the U.S. government where, you know, a, a rank-and-file government employee, which is what the astronauts really were, um, were sent out on PR duty in, in this particular way. Um, for the most part, the astronauts didn't really like it. For the most part, they weren't given any training. They did it themselves. But they did a great job in um, in pressing the flesh, letting people see and hear and sometimes shake hands with or get an autograph from a, you know, a real true um, space person. And uh, it, it, it worked out really well as a way of, of uh, tactically marketing the space program. David, I was wondering if you could talk about the importance of Walter Cronkite of CBS News to the uh, space program. Oh, yeah, Uncle Walter. <laughs> he, um, he was a raving fan of the, of the manned space program. And certainly that had a benefit for getting the, the, uh, the idea of space out there. He actually covered from the very early days um, most of the manned space missions. He actually started even before the manned space missions. And that, um, you know, that was, a big, that was a big help, a big boon to the program. But um, it's over, oversimplifying to say that that was, you know, sort of, a, a, of, of something that was an unusual importance because, in fact, every one of the major television stations, radio stations, newspapers, magazines ended up covering the program and providing um, valuable service to get information of the program out there. When Apollo 11 um, uh, flew into space, there were um, over 3,000 members of the media who were given press credentials. And, and, and so clearly there were a lot more people than just Walter Cronkite, although he certainly had um, more influence than any other journalist. There were many, many, many other journalists, all of whom helped, so, you know, it's, I don't know, 3 or 4% Walter Cronkite and all the rest, every, everybody else uh, is not 97, um, 96%. But um, uh, very, very important Walter was to the program. I didn't realize that one of the bigger issues, apart from getting a human into space, was getting a camera into space. David, could you talk about the, I want to say, the small soap opera about getting a camera on the space capsule? Well, cameras, still cameras, were really easy, but what was really hard was getting video onto um, a space, uh, onto the spacecraft, because what the goal of um, of a number of really forward-thinking people were uh, was to get live television from the moon, and of course, the be the beginning stages was live television from the spacecraft, which was an enormous problem for two very big reasons. The first problem was a technical one. Um, cameras at that time were huge, and they were tethered 
to studios. I mean, imagine, um, you know, we've all seen pictures of old television studios with these really big cameras on, on tripod wheels that, that people, could, people would wheel around. They, they weigh more than a human. Uh, and they had a big, fat honking cord that was connected to the studio itself. And it was um, very, very difficult to then take that technology and make it small enough that it could be um, brought onto a spacecraft because, you know, it, it cost something like $50,000 per pound to get something into space at that time. So, you know, it's really, really expensive. They can't carry this enormous camera into space. It's impossible. Um, the other aspect of technology is that the um, uh, the the wavelength, the um, uh, the communications between the spacecraft and Earth uh, couldn't be sent in the same format that television signals were sent um, uh, on land from one place to another. So they actually had to invent a new way of of sending the um, the the television signal which was uh, different than what was being used. So the signal then had to be converted and being um, being sent through. So that, that all cost millions and millions of dollars. And so that was the technical, those were the technical hurdles that needed to be overcome, which they did overcome. But what, it, what was even more of a hurdle was that there were a lot of people who were actually against having live television come from the spacecraft because they were, um, and there were some. Many of the astronauts were against it, and many of the um, many of the engineers were against it. The astronauts were against it because they didn't want to have to become uh, television uh, producers and television stars. Uh, they thought that it was more important for them to to do their job than to do this what they considered to be this frivolous thing. And the engineers didn't like it because they would have to devote so much of their attention to making the spacecraft lighter in order to get this camera, which they eventually got down to be less than 10 pounds, but they'd have to devote so much attention to removing other stuff from the spacecraft in order to make uh, enough weight for the camera. But fortunately, people like Tom Stafford, who was the head of the astronaut corps at the time, and Paul Haney, who was in the public affairs division, um, you know, argued passionately that having live television from the spacecraft and then eventually from the surface of the moon was an absolute requirement because, you know, here we are, the American public paying for this incredible space program, and they um, argued rightly, of course, that the American public had a right to see it all happen in real time. So finally, let's talk about one of the great puzzles is the fact that obviously in 1969, we landed on the moon with great acclaim. But it seems that with all that support that was there in the U.S. and like all the joy of actually landing on the moon, that public sentiment kind of fizzled pretty quickly on the space program once we got into the early 70s. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think there are a number of reasons, and, and uh, all of them can be looked at from different perspectives. I mean, David and I look at it from a marketing perspective, and you, you look at things as, as marketers uh, in the sense of a product life cycle, things uh, you know, ideas are introduced, they trend up, they take off, they peak, uh, and then they eventually start to fall. Uh, you see that with most fads around products. And those who are product managers seek to extend the life of those products and move them forward and find different ways uh, to reach their audiences. For the space program, the, the intense focus on just getting a human to the moon. You know, the mission was 
by Kennedy to land a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth before the decade was out, and we achieved that, a flippant answer would be, you know, NASA represents one of those rare government organizations that actually uh, achieved its mission. Uh, and, and once they did, and once we landed, you know, that there's that famous quote by Buzz Aldrin who looked at the lunar surface and called it a magnificent desolation. And rather than some of the fantasy stories of alien life and, 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 and drama, it became a story and shifted rather dramatically to one of geography and, and geology and science and became about rocks, really. And that is a more challenging story to sell than the one of adventure and exploration and of actually getting to the moon. And so that shift in story, or to translate it into marketing terms, that shift in the product life cycle, its appeal to its audiences, became a challenge to engage with the audiences in such a way that there would be uh, a lot of that fanfare. And, you know, we just talked about television and the importance of television. And for Apollo 11, there was 24-7 coverage. And interest started to tail off as they moved towards Apollo 12, the second lunar landing. But an amazing and, and rather unfortunate event happened. Um, on the surface of the moon, uh, astronaut Alan Bean um, when he was turning on the camera, he, he pointed it towards the sun, and it fritzed out the camera. It burned out the uh, uh, the eye of the camera, uh, and we didn't get that live video feed from the moon. And and our friend Alan Bean would would want us to say that he was never given any training that said don't point the camera to the sun. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so, um, uh, and we spoke with Alan specifically about this issue. Y you know, the other thing that I think's really important was the story was sold as a quest story with very, very long odds. Somebody uh, has a mission that they need to accomplish. Um, they finally accomplish it, and, and it's a fantastic experience for everybody. That was what was sold for the Apollo mission. It was a quest story. It wasn't about what we're going to do after we get there. It wasn't what, what that was going to lead us somewhere else. It was a story that said, we will achieve this goal. And we did achieve this goal. Hooray for us. We achieved the goal. Um, but then that means, well, what the hell do we do now? So I think um, what's, what I learned from that is that we have an opportunity in this country to do another quest story like this to achieve another equally audacious goal. Imagine if we could come up with something else. And I think we've missed a couple of opportunities to do that in our history since 1969. David Meerman, Scott, and Richard Jurek, the authors of Marketing the Moon, the Selling of the Apollo Lunar Program. Thanks for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Oh, thanks for having us on. Thank good, you. Good fun. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress. And you can also follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2014, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.